Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. We've got Robin Mayhew joining us, and, and Robin is a real uh, a scholar who's devoted a lot of thought to Ayn Rand's aesthetics, and in particular to Greek art. Uh, uh, Robert's going to start out by, by making a few comments about uh, Greek art, I think, right? Um, yeah. and, then, and, then we'll go, and then we'll go to the Q&A. So, um, uh, it Robert. won't take long, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I was hoping uh, to, set, to fit a lot more into my talk tomorrow on Aristotle and the Romantic Manifesto than I was able to do. So uh, these are kind of outtakes, and I, I think there's some interesting... Uh, you could say paradoxes in a way about uh, Ayn Rand's comments on ancient Greek art. Uh, in two chapters early in the Romantic Manifesto, uh, in, in uh, psycho- uh, Psychopistemology of Art and the Art and Sense of Life, um, she has very positive things to say about ancient Greek uh, culture, ancient Greek art, and particularly sculpture. Uh, she's making contrast between the, uh, well, she's asking the reader to imagine. Uh, the effect that the art that is around one in a culture has on one's view of the world. And she says, imagine, you know, you could compare uh, the ancient Greek world where you have these sculptures, the beautiful sculptures of man as God. And, and she says, and she points out that the, the artists who created these works, they're aware that there is deformity, disease, uh, sickness, um, etc. And, but they, they ignore that, then they present human beings as heroic and beautiful. Now contrast that, she says, with uh, the medieval period where, they, um, where, you're pres- where people are offered quite a different view of life. And, and the point she's making, of course, is, is how art uh, uh, um, uh, captures uh, a philosophy, conceptualizes or concretizes it. And uh, so you get this idea that she has a very positive view of ancient Greek art, or at least sculpture. And she even mentions, for example, that uh, the Venus de Milo is her, it, it, she, she praises the sculpture elsewhere in a Q&A. She refers to it as her favorite sculpture. Uh, and that's early, though, in, uh, I mean, there's uh, some exceptions later on uh, uh, to the praise for ancient Greek uh, art. However, later, uh, she, her comments are, are a bit more negative, and I have in mind um, the opening of the aesthetic uh, vacuum of our age. Do I want to read that? Yeah, maybe I'll say a few words about it. Here's the opening. She says, um, quote, Prior to the 19th century, literature presented man as a helpless being whose life and actions were determined by forces beyond his control. 
either by fate and the gods, as in the, case, as in the Greek tragedies, or by innate, and then she goes on to talk about uh, Shakespeare. Writers regarded man as metaphysically impotent. Their basic premise was determinism. On that premise, one could not project what might happen to men. One could only record what did happen, etc. And so it, it's quite a, a negative conception of, um, of art. And even... Uh, even in other, if, if discussions of Greek sculpture came up in the context of her uh, comments on Romanticism, uh, she tended to have uh, a less than uh, completely positive view of sculpture. And I think what this difference reflects is the structure of the Romantic Manifesto. The first four chapters are her philosophy of art generally. She's laying the groundwork for it. But in uh, the rest of the, the, the work is devoted to her, um, her conception of romanticism. And I think this is where the subtitle of the work is important to keep in mind. It's a philosophy of literature. And that's the context in which he's talking about romanticism. So if sculpture comes up in that uh, context, it, it's irrelevant or, and she later says, it's anachronistic to speak of Greek sculpture as, um, as romantic and uh, she has negative comments in that, uh, in that context. Um, I think I'll leave it at that uh, for, for uh, we can, we can uh, discuss that more. Sounds good. So to. I assume that there are going to be some questions. Uh, those of you who didn't get, I, I'll just note, I think on Monday I kind of went through art forms and said a few things on, on, on many of them. I, I missed at least one that's been pointed out, maybe more. So I, I, I didn't mean that list to be comprehensive, but I missed dance. I didn't say anything about dance. I have to admit I don't have that much to say about dance as an art form. I don't know much about it, but it certainly I didn't not mention it because it's not an art form. It clearly is. Ballet is obviously beautiful and 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 qualifies as as a great art, um, and, but it, it it wasn't on their list. So and there might be others I I haven't I haven't looked and make sure it's comprehensive. Skylar, you you've been on every single day. Yes, it seems that way, right? Um, good afternoon, gentlemen. This is actually directed at you, Dr. Brooke. What is, what don't you like about Prince, and what do you like the most about Pink Floyd? <laughs> <laughs> We're discussing art. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. We, we missed point. Robert's sense of humor. Good point. I mean, I just don't like Prince. I don't have a, I don't have a good explanation. I, I don't like... I don't like his whole. I don't like the way he presents himself. I I I find it's under. You know, it's it's. You know the 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 obliteration of masculine and feminine in the way he he acts. I I don't find it appealing. I don't I, I don't find the music interesting or deep or particularly emotional for me. Um, again, I, as I said, as I said, I think on Monday. I think popular music is very much, you're very much attuned to what you grew up with, to particular memories, to particular associations. And for me, Pink Floyd represents some of my teenage years. And, and I still like it for, I think, I think that some of their songs have amazing melodies. I can think, Wish You Were Here is maybe my favorite. And, and it's just got a beautiful guitar and it's got a beautiful melody and has complexity. And it's a little longer than the three minute, you know, repetitive, ordinary song. 
Uh, but, but, but yeah, most of Pink Floyd is pretty dark, but then, you know, teenage years sometimes are a little <laughs> dark. So, but, the, but it reminds me of what it was like to be back then. So I don't, I, again, I, my like, I don't present it as, as, as good aesthetically, and I think it's very dangerous to do that with music, particularly popular music. Thank you very much. And I don't know that dark is a particularly an aesthetic evaluation or necessarily you can't dismiss something at least yeah. because it's malevolent oh yes yeah, yeah. in terms of the aesthetic quality absolutely yeah, yeah, right. off even in terms of the value you get out of it right. if you if you're here for 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 lisa's uh, reading of uh of um hugo i mean that was pretty dark right but it was amazing and it was emotional and it was it was incredibly impactful so Often, the, the malevolent, the dark, is very, very powerful and very life-enhancing, very life-rewarding uh, to have experienced it. I'd be interested to hear about some personal favorites, if it's not too personal to share, in various art forms, painting, architecture, sculpture, literature, music. Okay, um, <laughs> well... I had a very different uh, hierarchy of artistic yeah. forms that I discovered. Uh, I've known Ankar a long time, and we're close. <laughs> um, but it's opposite. Uh, mine highest is literature, easily literature, then um, theater, and maybe you include film, then the visual arts, uh, and then music is, is you know, the least uh, nurtured, I guess, of the art forms in, in, in my case. Uh, for literature... Um, it's the usual suspects, I'm afraid. Uh, I love Victor Hugo. Uh, D I mean, Ayn Rand, of course. I loved Victor Hugo. All his major novels I read often. I mean, you know, at least once a decade um, or twice. Uh, so that would be uh, Notre Dame, Les Miserables, The Man Who Laughs, Toilers of the Sea, uh, 93. Uh, um, yeah, and in fact, uh, I recently read a book uh, by... I think it's David Bellos. It's uh, the, the novel of the century on Les Miserables. And he happened to mention that there are 365 chapters uh, in Les Miserables. And um, <laughs> I had an idea. Uh, I spent, uh, in 2018, I read one chapter a day for the entire year. And it was a wonderful, I don't recommend that if you haven't read it more than once or twice. Um, but it was marvelous. Um, but yeah, that, those are my top choices in that, in, in the field of, uh, literature. I like uh, in theater um, a lot of Shakespeare. I like Radigan. You don't see that too often. Ibsen. Um, uh, theater can be wonderful if it's um, w well done. I think I'll stop there to give uh, um, I mean some came up in the discussion of the last two days uh, in sculpture. Uh, I was, so I've recently I mean in the last few years went to Florence um, and I had high expectations, and it's one of those <laughs> rare times that it way exceeds your high expectations. Um, so the, the sculpture of the Renaissance, I find o overall incredibly impressive. But Michelangelo um, and the David, but some of the other works, it's just they're unbelievably moving. Um, so in, in sculpture, I think that would be my top. Um, in music, I like a lot of the Romanticists, but I'll give a plug for one who's not romantic, and I, I don't, you like Bach, I find, and Bach, certain interpreters of Bach, so for instance, Glenn Gould yeah. in um, the, the keyboard music, uh, it's just, I just find, I think he's an unbelievable genius, 
um, and what he could convey at that time, and you, when you can compare him to contemporaries of what they can convey with music and what he could convey, um, that's, that's one of my top in music. And it, I find it interesting. It's, so it's certainly not romantic, but mm -hmm. most of the romanticists loved Bach. Um, and even someone like Chopin studied Bach. Uh, but it's true of Schumann, it's true of Mendelssohn. Mendelssohn Many yeah. of them resurrected Bach, yeah. who was forgotten in the 19th century. Um, so that's one of my top in music. And, and you can find performances where they romanticize the performances of Bach. So mm -hmm. Pablo Casals' cello, uh, where he does Bach, is much more romanticized ver interpretation of Bach. I, so I agree with Robert on, on the literature. Um, I mean, every, all his recommendations uh, are fantastic. Uh, Renaissance sculpture, I would add, I love Bernini. If you're ever in uh, Rome, uh, go to the Villa Borghese, one of the most stunning experiences you will ever have. Sculpture after sculpture after sculpture is magnificent and beautiful and, 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 and emotional provoking. But I also love uh, 19th century sculpture, both French 19th century sculpture and Scandinavian, I've discovered, 19th century sculpture. Mm -hmm. Here I'd recommend um, going to the Musée d'Orsay in, uh, in Paris. Uh, of course, the Louvre. Uh, I mean, one of my favorite sculptures ever is Spartacus at the Louvre. If you, if you, if you go to, there's a, there's a courtyard with sculpture. It's kind of, on the outside, it's covered, but it's, it's, uh, it has some magnificent sculptures. Spartacus in particular is great. The Dying Slave of Michelangelo's mm. at the Louvre. And then the Dorsay has uh, dozens of beautiful, beautiful, amazing sculptures. And I can't remember all the names of the sculptors, but pretty much everybody there is, is fantastic. Um, I'd also recommend the Glyptotech, I think I'm pronouncing that right, in Copenhagen, which has a combination of both uh, Scandinavian and uh, French sculptors, just stunning and, and beautiful. Again, some of my favorite sculptures. And those of you who remember values when I used to sell uh, photographs of sculpture, I know some of, some of you might even have some, uh, those photographs on your walls. Some of those sculptures are at the Glyptotech uh, in, uh, in Copenhagen. I'll also make a weird recommendation in terms of sculpture, uh, but maybe one of the best places to see sculpture anywhere in the world is in cemeteries. Um, and particularly cemeteries of rich cities from the 19th century where, where when people died, they would celebrate their life or mourn their death with a sculpture on their tomb. And the best of all of those, as far as I can tell, is the, the, the cemetery in Milan where both Verdi and Toscanini are buried. And you could spend a week there and not see all the sculptures. And uh, the, they're so touching and beautiful and some of the magnificent. And it's just the best 19th century sculptors of Italy were sculpting for... That's how they made their money. They would, they would, they, they would sculpt for the cemetery. So uh, I would strongly recommend that. And then one recommendation for U.S. location for sculpture would be Brooklyn Gardens in South Carolina. Brooklyn Gardens, South Carolina. It's about, a, I don't know, 20 minutes south of Myrtle Beach. Nobody knows about this place. But this is a place that has 400 sculptures uh, set in a plantation setting with beautiful gardens and the sculptures and the, and the, sh the, sh the, the lawns and the, and the trees and everything are just, you know, just magnificent. So there's a lot of that. Quickly painting. You know, I love, uh, I love paintings from all, from the Renaissance on. There's all the painters. I love Caravaggio. I mean, I love Raphael and, and kind of the, the classics from the Renaissance, but I love, I love Caravaggio for his drama and his lighting. And then I love the, the kind of, um, what do you call it? 
the word has just escaped my mind. But the 19th century academics, the 19th century academics, both in, in France and in England. Uh, Frederick Leighton would be an example in England. Um, Al- Jerome, Amatadema, and then the Pre-Raphaelites. The Pre-Raphaelites who kind of rebelled against academics a little bit, but uh, a lot of the Pre-Raphaelite paintings in England are fantastic. That's uh, one of the, one of the uh, you know, so those are, and they also sculpt, so the, the Pre-Raphaelites, Leighton is also a sculptor. Uh, so the, 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 the kind of the academics in France and the academics in England, I think, are some of the greatest painters, and you get that sharpness and that vivid brain fog insomnia moodiness weight gain maybe you think they're just part of getting older but mini health understands that for women over 40 they can all connect to menopause it's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience not just hot flashes MIDI clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. The of color that, that I think Rand talks about uh, that you see later in, in, uh, in, in Capoletti and in Dali, although Dali is even better at, at that sharpness and, and contrast. I like Dali, although I don't like his themes, usually, uh, but, but everything Ayn Rand says about him in the Romantic Manifesto, I respond to that. Uh, and I, you know, when it comes to movies, it's hard, but I mentioned Lubitsch, Hitchcock. I've got a list here. It's got 237 movies. Um, and this is one of the many lists that I've made over many, many years of favorite movies that I have. Uh, so if somebody wants specifically movies, I can read off 10, 15 of them at some point. Yeah, I, I, would, affirm, I would agree. Um, uh, if you're looking for movies uh, and you haven't explored Hitchcock, well, most of you have heard, heard him. Uh, he's one of my favorites. But Lubitsch is wonderful. Um, his films are terrific. And you can still see a lot of them. So. Yeah, this refers to the difference in slight uh, definition between, of art between Aristotle and Ayn Rand. So... What's okay? Say that again, because I didn't hear you. My question is about the definition of art by Aristotle and Ayn Rand. Aristotle said that art is a reality as it could be, and Ayn Rand, as you say, as you know, has said that art is reality as it might be and ought to be. Could I? Um, that's half my talk tomorrow. <laughs> Uh, I, I mean that virtually, literally. Uh, I, I'm going to talk a, about um, the, the might be and ought to be principle, as you call it, because there's a lot of confusion. Uh, she's been criticized for getting Aristotle wrong, and I want to uh, set it, you know, set the record straight. But I'm going to. I'd rather uh, talk about that uh, okay, tomorrow. You. But it's a good question. I have a question. <clears throat> oh, uh, I have a question about what Rand said about our responses to art. And she says they're a response to our metaphys... Um, in part, it's a response to metaphysical views that we hold. And that's the case even for people who have never thought about metaphysics. And I'm trying to understand that better. So um, my question is this. Is there a sense that some... Is there a sense in which someone who has never thought about metaphysics holds a metaphysics subconsciously. Because to me, it seems, that seems implausible. It seems more likely that someone holds views on individual concrete things, and those views on the little concrete things 
sort of are logically consistent with a metaphysical view. There's no part of them that thinks about metaphysics. There's no subconscious metaphysics. Um, so I was wondering if you might be able to clear up my confusion on that. I, I think if, putting aside children, right, um, everyone has a view of reality, uh, if you're talking about metaphysics, an implicit, if they don't have an explicit philosophy, they have an implicit sense uh, or, or conception of what the world is like. And when Ayn Rand talks about this in art and sense of life and philosophy and sense of life, it's very much in, in, in very, very general terms. Uh, the world is intelligible. Uh, one can achieve one's values. Uh, um, you can have other examples of, of that sort of thing. But, um, and she said it's inescapable that you have it. They're, they're, ultimately, the only question is, do you have an explicitly fully worked out or a uh, um, conscious set of convictions about the nature of the world, or is it an um, um, a collection uh, kind of subconsciously formed? Uh, so I think that, yeah, I, I would say. Yeah, and the, you're treating, I think in the question, you're treating it too much as though what you have is conceptual conclusions that are lurking in your subconscious, and it's yeah. how did they get there? Yeah. But so you have to take really seriously what she says. And as I said earlier in one of the earlier yeah. sessions, the first question to ask is, do I think there is such a phenomenon? But yeah, what she, that question. Yeah, but what she thinks the phenomenon is, so uh, for a sense of light, quoting from the Romantic Manifesto, a sense of life is a preconceptual, preconceptual equivalent of metaphysics, an emotional, subconsciously integrated appraisal of man and of existence. And then she goes on from there. So it's preconceptual, and it's the equivalent. So what she's saying is you make certain kinds of integrations, and this yeah. is why she's stressing that it's emotional, not cognitive integrations, that start to have a real, a real standing in place in a person's mind and start to color the way he looks at the world. And they would, you can put those in conceptual terms, but they're not in the subconscious as conceptual conclusions. But this is much more widely her view of what it means to have an implicit philosophy. So th there's a way that you can read, and I think mm -hmm. should read the Romantic Manifesto, as it's a much deeper exploration of the issue raised in the lead essay of philosophy who needs it. And the issue raised there is people have an implicit philosophy. But what that means is not they've thought about all these questions and somehow their subconscious answered them and they don't know what their subconscious is doing. So that's not, it's not like a, another person lurking below the surface who's conceptual and doing all these things. So, so she has a definite view of how these integrations happen and what it means to call them preconceptual. And then the, one of the basic questions in thinking about this is do I think I have things like that in my subconscious? Um, and this kind of a more emotional perspective on the world. And my answer for myself and observing other people is, yes, people have these kinds of things. And in philosophy, who needs it? She's giving some of the evidence of why to think that people have this kind of perspective on the world. And one of the major pieces of evidence, and she's just giving a sliver of it, is the way people use catchphrases and that it sums up something that they can't really express and talk, yet feel. And the feel is part of the issue of it, that it's a sense of life uh, uh, phenomenon. So and how I, are those 
and I think one of the one of the and the philosophers can correct me if this is wrong, but you don't have a choice about integrating. Your mind is an integrating machine in a sense. It's integrating in the backgrounds. So all those concretes you talked about, they're being integrated with, and if you're not in control, they're being integrated without your conceptual control. And what they add up to is ultimately this kind of emotion, this kind of feel, this kind of sense. And that is what, that's what underlying it's, it's, you don't have, again, it's not, not all integrations are conscious. Indeed, many of them are not. And, and, and that's why you have to take the reins. That's why you have to be in control of them. Yeah, I guess, I guess I'm just wondering how do those, how, how is it that, I, I, I guess I'm skeptical that things do integrate subconsciously. There's facts that seem to follow from that assumption that I observe, but I don't, obs- I, I don't, I'm not, I guess I'm not convinced. Yeah, and, okay, yeah, next person. <laughs> So I've heard two ideas that, on the surface, appears to be contradictory. The first is art is something you experience as an end in itself. The second is art is a means to an end, for example, as fuel for the soul, or as an introspective tool to help you identify your implicit values. Could you help me reconcile these two ideas? It's a good question, would it? Um, the, the so I'll say one aspect of it. To say that it's an end in itself is not to say that it doesn't satisfy some need. Indeed, the, I think the perspective in objectivism is every end in itself satisfies some kind of need. And you can view life as an end in itself, but life and the process of living is satisfying the need to be alive and all the requirements. And if you think of it as an activity, rather than there's a means and you reach an end, if you think of it, and life, and this is the stress that she puts on thinking of life as the ultimate value, as an end in itself, it's an activity for its own sake. It may, life maintains life that maintains life that maintains life. And if, you, if that process comes to a stop or you don't do it well, you die. Um, so if you think of it as an activity, it's both an end in itself, but it's satisfying a crucial need that life for that process to be continuing, you have to satisfy. And part of that need is not only, but part of that need is for the need of fuel. Um, so the means-ends distinction in objectivism is a relative distinction. You do something to reach something that makes it possible for you to continue to act, to reach goals, to continue to act, to reach goals, and that's the life process. And if you think of it like that, then you don't think of it as to say that it's an end in itself means it has no purpose, no function, no goal. It doesn't, it doesn't satisfy any of the needs of the living thing that's engaged in this act, activity. <clears throat> so that's one aspect of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I don't see the contradiction. That is, it's an, it's an end in itself, and it's also fuel and everything else. But... You know, and, 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 and they're related, just as Ankar said, right? The, the fuel is what... So when you, when you experience an artwork and you have this immense emotion, in a sense, that's enough. But that emotion is also the fuel that, that provides you with the motivation to, to continue to be alive, to, 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 to continue to enjoy life. So it's doing this both at the same time. 
And w- one is an aspect of the other. Thank you. And, and isn't it the pleasure you receive it, that, that you experience in, in an artwork is an end in itself? Yes. But it's also yeah, yeah, of course. But it's but also it's, fuel, <laughs> right? But even even if you don't identify it as fuel, it's still just a pleasure is, is an end. And there's the same. You get the same perspective on pleasure more widely in objectivism than you get for the experience of art. So if you read the psychology of pleasure and the virtue of selfishness, you get the same perspective. The experience of pleasure is an end in itself. It's something to be sought for its own sake. But it also has a crucial survival value that if you don't have this kind of experience and if you don't have it over a long period of time, it kills your ability to act because in part it kills your motivation. And the motivation of it's important to reach values because this experience, you get this experience as, as, as a kind of perceptual experience of what it means to value and to reach values. So you have the same perspective more widely about pleasure in objectivism as you have or the distinctively, distinctive aesthetic pleasure that you get from art. So I've been thinking a lot about that slide um, that was up the first day, <laughs> and it basically showed that music was the only um, art form that you know had access to the emotions directly in that moment. And one thing I got to thinking was that made perfect sense to me when I read it um, the first time, which was, I think, a couple of years ago. And then I recently started working for um, a lighting company, and we do like concert lighting, uh, lighting production. And I started to realize, I think that maybe uh, lighting also could be considered something that hits your emotions directly, at least when it's performance lighting. And you always see uh, lighting and sound together in a concert, um, not necessarily, but it's a rock concert or whatever. Um, like the classical concert tonight, for instance, that kind of lighting is not appropriate. But for certain types of concerts, um, that sort of performance lighting adds a new dynamic uh, to that experience. And I think that the colors and the way that the lights would flash, pulse, or any kind of patterns might be considered uh, another way to access the emotions directly. And I just wanted to hear what you guys thought. I mean, I think there's something unique about the performance of music or the performance of something as compared to the just listening of it at home or the, and I think that the lighting adds to that, but what makes it an aesthetic experience is the music. The, the lighting is adding to that. And, yeah, and it can, and again, if it's good, then it's integrated in some way. You know, I, I've never thought about it. I mean, as you're saying it, 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 it makes sense, but I wouldn't say lighting is an art. Right, I'd say lighting is a support to, like in film, lighting is is part of the art that is film. It's part of that integrated product, and I think the performance is the integrated product. I mean, I'd rather I, not talk about music. Yeah, I'm, I'm just a I, nervous right, right. I rarely, well, actually, rarely is never. Uh, I never find that kind of lighting for musical performances, I always find it distracting. Um, so I don't find that it adds anything anything it takes away from the experience. Maybe it can be done in a way that, that is more integrated. But if, it, if you think of it as a performance and a visual, then yeah, I could see that there's an element in the visual arts that would for sure have that component to it. 
That's likely a minority view, so I think your job is secure. <laughs> I appreciate that. I have, yeah. of, I have a lot of minority views. <laughs> um, are video games arts? And it, you know, can't, can't help escape the video game Bioshock, which I think Yaron uh, uh, has mentioned on his podcast that some people have even come to objectivism because of that. So. Uh, Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Mini Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I mean, I don't know, but I think it could be art. I, I'm, I'm not sure it is. <laughs> I'm not sure it's risen to the level. Um, but it might it, it, it could evolve to be of that quality and that quality experience. I, I'm skeptical of what exists out there today, uh, just because, you know, mainly because of the... the but it, it, I don't see... I, I can't think of a reason why it cannot become one if, it, my, if it's risen to that level, yeah. My immediate reaction is I would classify it as a game and that some of them can be done really beautifully or really artistically but that that wouldn't make it a work of art if you're talking about some kind of... I can imagine something that, where you're really immersed in a, in a universe that, that is being created and you're really experiencing an aesthetic experience within that universe. I mean, uh, a game can still drive somebody to read Ayn Rand. It doesn't have to be art. So I, I don't know if Bioshock... Some music, but, too. Yeah. Yeah. If you think of what Greg was talking about in his talk, what was it, a day or two ago, that you can think of it as having some of these things that are... that you can think of as having some aesthetic values. Um, you can think of it as a video game, as having some of that. I mean, one of Greg's examples that he brought up is dancing, but not dancing from the point of view of that you're an audience member contemplating a performance, but actually engaging in dance. And part of what a video game is, you're playing the game, and this is why you're stressing it's a game. And that is different than art as contemplation but it might have some artistic elements yeah. into it, and you might in some sense feel like you're entering a realm and so on, but it's not contemplation, and I think that, that makes a difference yeah. when you're thinking about these things. And it, you could say that about a chessboard. You could mm -hmm. imagine a chessboard that's beautifully constructed, and each one of the, you know, the rook and the knight and all that are, are beautifully carved and all that, and, and there would be a, almost something like an aesthetic experience, but that's not a, that doesn't make it an artwork per se, I would think. Yeah. Thank you, that was really clarifying. Uh, I didn't know that Bach wasn't a romantic. Uh, so what makes Bach not romantic <laughs> and what makes music romantic? Oof. Who knows? 
Um, <laughs> not me. But, it, it's, but this is a common classification, that Bach is part of the Baroque period, and then you get a classical, not in the sense of classical music, but a classical. So someone like Haydn would be put in the, in the classical period, and then you get the Romanticists in the 19th century with Beethoven often put as a Bridge. transitional figure. Though I think of him as essentially romantic, and in, in music, the way I think of it is, it's the, what she stresses about romanticism in literature. I think it's, it's this element that people are responding to in music as well. It's the projection of an individual soul. And I think Beethoven's the first music, and this is not true of Bach, though you get elements. Art is a sense of life projection. So there's always a sense of life projected in it if you're talking about great art. But thinking of it as the goal is to project my sense of life uh, and my, my, stressing my view of the world, I think you get that and what people are getting, that there's something really different about Beethoven's music, is that it's unmistakably Beethoven as a unique personality. And then when you get to people like Chopin and Schumann and Liszt, uh, and Dvorak and Tchaikovsky, you really feel like it's individual self-expression in a way that you do not have that experience, say, with Haydn. And some of it has to do with the fact that pre the Romantics, there were certain rules that they followed. There were certain conventions. There were certain traditions that you had to fit your music in. And that starts being shattered by Beethoven and, uh, and certainly later on. Uh, the, the kind of the rigidity of kind of what they call the classical forms starts allowing for that personal expression, right? You're expressing yourselves. You're not limited by these forms in, in expressing yourselves. You're, expre you're using whatever form is necessary in order to express what you want and need to express. And, and I, I should add that, um, I mean, Romanticism as, a, as a, an aesthetic movement began I think late um, 18th century, but mostly it's 19th century phenomenon. So anything before that, it would be anachronistic to call it romantic. And in each one of the major uh, art forms, there were people who called themselves romantic. They, uh, an important part of what they were doing was rejecting the classicism that came before it. And um, they were describing themselves as, uh, I don't know if they put it as projecting an individual value, but they were individualists rejecting the, uh, the, what came before them. And what became before them were these classicist rules. So they often saw themselves as we're independent, we're, emotion, we're pro-emotion, not like that rigid yep. reason. And so um, what Ayn Rand is doing in, in the Romantic Manifesto, when she gets to uh, describing her philosophy of literature, is wading into this conceptual chaos uh, where there's no really well-formed uh, identification of what precisely romanticism is. And she's trying to clarify that and, and come up with, with the answer to the question, what is romanticism? And she's only doing it for literature. And she, she says that explicitly in, in a Q&A. And what she comes up with, it, it's, the, it's the kind of literature that, is, uh, uh, that regards uh, man as a volitional being. Right? And there's all sorts of other things she says about romantic literature. And she was once asked in a question period, do the terms, you, you know, your conception of romanticism, does that apply to the other art forms? And, and in a nutshell, what she says is, may, you know, it probably does, but someone needs to do that work. Someone needs to go into all those areas and do what she did for literature. And that's gonna, it, it takes a lot of work. Um, so I'd be very careful you know, throwing around the term romanticism with respect to... Um, uh, I mean, if you're an expert and you have an idea, uh, 
fine, but um, you have to be very careful in, in, in how you apply uh, that term to, to the other uh, uh, forms of art. Well, unless you're talking about it historically, because it is an historic movement. Oh, yeah, yes. I think, I mean, yes. uh, you, 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 people who know what they're talking about know yeah. what romantic music <laughs> is, and I think there's nothing, there's certainly nothing wrong with I that. I mean, Ayn Rand's conception of romanticism, beware of how you apply yeah, that I would say, I would uh, that. to other art forms, uh, be, because it's not clear how it applies, if it applies. Right. The work hasn't been done. The, the intellectual work to apply it to painting and sculpture and certainly to music hasn't been done. But emotion seems to play a heavy role in the other, right. in the other art forms. The emotion that is projected on the canvas or in the sculpture. Uh, there's a certain rigidity to the period just before what is called the Romantics, where they, again, they're, they're going by formula. They're copying Greek poses and Greek proportions and Greek... And then there's the, a breakup of that, which seems to include some individual features, right? There's a certain style to them, and you can, you can tell the painters, but those are evoking, you can tell that they're being more, they're evoking individual emotion in the, in, in the painting or the sculpture. Dr. Gatte, you said something on Sunday that I found absolutely fascinating, and I've been thinking about it for the past few days, and I'm very curious as to what all of you think about the implications so if I'm remembering correctly, and I'm mumbling the, muddling the words a little bit here, it's, you, you mentioned that Ayn Rand wrote the Romantic Manifesto to be from the perspective, or to be useful for the perspective of the artist rather than the consumer of the art. And so I'm curious about the implications of that. And so what might be different or added to a manifesto in Romanticism if it were written with the consumer of the artwork in mind rather than the creator? Um, I mean, I think uh, there, there would be many things that would be different. There would, there would be much more of an emphasis on um, you as a consumer, what you need to do, what the, why there are obstacles now. I mean, if you were at Lisa's talk, uh, she was talking, uh, just, just, uh, just before this talk actually, she was talking about some of what makes it difficult to approach poetry and things you need to do. That's all from not, to, if you want to be a poet, you need to know these things. It's all, if you want to enjoy poetry of the 19th century and earlier, this is some of what you need to do in order to, be, to, to approach it and to get more familiar with it and to be able to respond to it more. And I, that, that's a real phenomenon and I think in almost all the arts, I think it's true in music, we talked about that a little bit, you need to give yourself time to be able to integrate into process. And if that were the emphasis of it, there would be much more discussion of those kinds of things. And I, I don't think, I, don't, I can't remember what I said exactly, but I don't think the Romantic Manifesto is written exclusively from the perspective of the producer, but it's, certain, it's a manifesto, and it's a manifesto for artists um, and, and a school of art is primarily for the producers of art, of how they should be thinking of what they're doing. And so it has that element as a crucial element in it. And, and when you look at its precursor in the, the lections on the fiction writing, those, I think, again, are primarily, not exclusively, but primarily from the point of view, if you want to be a fiction writer, this is how you need to think about your craft and the principles um, <clears throat> in it. So, so that's... it's. It's an essential element of the Romantic Manifesto, but not the only element of it. 
Uh, about the great plays um, listed in Leonard Peacock's book, um, I have my favorites for two of them, uh, which are the Comédie Française uh, versions of uh, Corneille and Rostand, but I don't have favorites of the other six. Can you mention uh, what <laughs> versions of the play um, you like? I've not really given that much thought. I, uh, I mean, I love Antigone, and I, I teach Antigone, but I've never seen a performance of it. Um, uh, I saw Othello about 10 years ago in London at the Royal Shakespeare uh, Company, and it was fantastic. Uh, they do good work uh, for the most part, but it's not this one uh, performance that I have in mind. Um, I like the um, Derek Jacobi. I saw that one live uh, um, in the 80s, uh, the performance of Cyrano, which was marvelous, but I also like the film with Jose Ferrar. That has a certain uh, uh, grandeur to it, I think, but um, I haven't seen the enemy of the people, um, and I've not seen Monovana, of course. So, yeah, I mean, you would have to have a uh, you would have to have seen each one of these plays many times at the theater and have a favorite among those. I, I can't, I don't have that experience. Uh, I would just encourage you all to see it. Even a even a mediocre performance of uh, those plays is a phenomenal experience. I, I saw Othello in London in a small little theater. Uh, and it was, it was, and it wasn't the Royal Shakespeare Theater, and it was fantastic. It was so compelling. So I would just encourage you to go experience experience these uh, performances in the theater. Um, my favorite of them. Now I had read Cyrano before, and it wasn't part of the. It was as someone said it was seven great plays, and then Cyrano yep. got added. My favorite of them was Don Carlos, um, and I like Schiller a lot, and I find there's a real commonality in aspects of his sense of life and Ayn Rand's in the, the cleanness of the universe, which he depicts. And I've seen Don Carlos performed in Toronto, and it's unbelievable. I'm so not. this is a follow-up uh, involving the implicit premises. So you said last time that integrations get formed subconsciously. So can you give me evidence that integrations get formed subconsciously or an example? I mean, you... the. I mean, the, com the, the kind of standard example, which I think is a real example, is when you, you're working on some issue, a personal problem, a problem at work, and you're struggling with it, and you're it, so you're thinking about it, but much of your thinking then is going into your subconscious, and you wake up, or you're taking a walk, and the, it suddenly comes to you what the answer is. That is in part a subconscious integration. It's not, it's not your, so the, the kind of picture of it as there's, you've got two people in you, your conscious mind or your subconscious, and who the hell knows how it's screwing you. Yeah, I'm That's yeah, not I'm the to issue. Avoid that view. Yeah, so it's not a Freudian perspective exactly. of an unconscious who's, who's in the background plotting your demise. Uh -huh. um, but it, there is something that happens at the, not, uh, at the below the level of consciousness that is crucially connected to the consciousness and what you're doing with your conceptual mind, which is why I think she terms it the subconscious and not just brain activity and something like that. It's below the level of conscious awareness, but it's still a phenomenon of awareness. Um, and there is such a thing as, as there's awareness that you're not fully conscious of, even at the perceptual 
level when you're talking about on the periphery of your vision and things like that. So that's part of what she's bringing up. And she gives it, if you read the art of fiction, part of what she talks about from the point of view of becoming a writer is how many premises that you need to uh, consciously think about and work on as this developing your perspective on reality from the point of view of being a writer and that that then gets stored and integrated in your subconscious and it becomes automatic. But the whole phenomenon of things becoming automatic, another place you can read is in ITOE where this is stressed, that there's many things you first have to do very consciously when you're learning mathematics, how to tie your shoe, how to speak, that then becomes automatized. But the process of automatization is subconscious, and you make new connections, or your mind makes new connections. And, so, yeah. and, and you can only get at this evidence through introspection, yeah. right? So if you need to do that, <laughs> yeah. well, for, you know, yeah. for those who introspect, no explanation is necessary. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was uh, curious about the Romantic Manifestos, which focuses on literature, as you say. Would it be more accurate to say that it focuses on the novel? Because poetry, short stories, and I'm always curious, like, how do you apply you know, value orientation, plot, to uh, like the cask of Amontillado or, or Hawthorne short stories or anything like that? And, and especially with poetry, which is just pure style, how can you you know, apply Rand's particular view of value conflicts and things like that? Um, well, as far as poetry goes, she, she gives that as an example. She says, once she talks about the highest tier of romantic literature, she says there are some romantics who recognize, remember she believes that the essence of romantic literature is a respect for human volition or the, the, that human beings are volitional beings. And she says there are some romantics who um, they recognize volition in the realm of, conscious, of, of consciousness, but not of action. And uh, that is that it's up to their choice what kind of convictions they hold, what's important to them, but in the realm of action, uh, they, are, they are not in control. And I believe it's in that context where she says, these tend to be writers, they have no plots, uh, the, the um, the poets are the ones that fall under the Byronic poets. I think she she mentions. Um, so I think that's how perhaps she would she would uh, evaluate some of of the Romantic poets. Uh, that seems to fit uh, some of them. But I'm not really an expert on on poetry. And and she does make some comments about it. That so poetry <clears throat> has theme and style, but you right. can't think of it as having a plot or even a story even if some epic poems do, but that's not the essence of what it is. She talk, in the art of fiction, she talks about short stories and how it's different from what you can, what's possible and what, therefore, you should try to do in the, in the medium of a novel as a distinct form of literature. And, I mean, she has comments on the playwright and what he does. So there's con the focus, I think, is, I mean, and she says it's on the novel because she's a novelist, and she thinks it's the, the most developed... Well, not develop, it's the form of literature that the most is possible for the artist to pr portray and project. And because she's a novelist, although she wrote plays too and some short stories, but her focus is that. That's the focus, but you can find some of the, how she thinks it applies to other of the literary, uh, other forms of literature and some of the distinctive nature of those as well. Though the focus is on the novel. 
I want to compare the love triangle in Cyrano and the scene in Atlas Shrugged between Dagny, Francisco and Galt. In the later one, Galt is a model of integrity. When Dagny or Francisco asks her, will you come to my house? Dagny passes the buck to Galt and Galt is the guy who finally says, no, in that case, I won't let you go. But in the case of Cyrano, he has loved Roxanne throughout his life, but he has never expressed it. And he actually encourages his friend to, he gives him the lines and all that. And so he, he is not a model of integrity. So why did she hail Cyrano as the greatest play? Was it before she wrote Atlas Shrugged or later or did she reconcile her difference afterwards? Because Cyrano is a model of rationality, integrity, as the saying goes. Well, Cyrano is this magnificent hero. Uh, it has a tragic ending, but then most of the, um, all of the Hugo novels have tragic ending, and that's not what she's looking for. She's not looking for philosophical agreement. I mean, uh, Cyrano has real issues philosophically, you could you could say. And what's fascinating I find about the, I've compared those two as well. I think it's an interesting, a constructive comparison. She goes on to describe what would have happened had um, Galt let, uh, you know, had Galt uh, left the choice, you know, let, let uh, I'm starting to mumble now. Um, had, she, had Galt made Cyrano's choice, in effect, uh, let her go to San uh, Francisco and, and um, uh, it's a very depressing, tragic description of what the life would have been uh, for, for all three of them. And in a way, that's what, if it hadn't been for the death of Christian, it would have been. Um, but I'm not fully answering your question, I think. Do you want to? Yeah. Okay. I mean, I would just say, I, I don't think you can, you, you can judge, and this is the, the point about Sense of Life, you can't judge these works of art by the standard of the perfect man, by the standard of John Galt. Simino is this magnificent human being, this, this larger-than-life character that you fall in love with. And yes, he's not John Galt. But you respond to him at a deep sense of life level. I mean, some of us do anyway. Uh, at a deep sense of life level because of all his virtues that he is, that he is projecting. And yeah, it's a tragedy. But, but you can get so much out of it that, you know, that you can learn from the tragedy. I mean, you, 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 you experience that tragedy emotionally in, a, in an incredibly satisfying way. The, uh, oh, go, go ahead. Um, I want to really emphasize that Cyrano is a man of integrity um, and that you might not agree from a philosophical perspective with yeah. his whole value perspective and what he's after and what he thinks is possible in the world is not the same as thinking that he is not loyal to his conception of life and what yeah. is possible in life, so he doesn't think he can win Roxanne, and he, and he really thinks that, and he has respect for Krishna, and she's in love with him, <clears throat> and that he's going to do something to make it possible for that and for her to reach her love. That is a real dedication to his values, um, and he's loyal through the play to his view of what his values are and what is possible. And towards the end, I mean, part of what is tragic about it. It's, he's ready, though, 
uh, scared at the end to tell her um, that he's the one who's been writing the letters, and then Christian dies. And the line where it's um, it, where she says it, it was your tears on these letters. Yeah, but it was his blood. And that conveys a lot about his conception of what is valuable in life, what is right, his view of Christian and his respect for Christian. Like the play, if you see the play performed and Christian is portrayed as sort of just a mindless uh, guy who's pretty, that destroys the play. It's important that he's a person of some stature. And that, this is, so this, you have from beginning to end with Cyrano a real dedication to values. You might think something's wrong about the way he thinks fully about values, but that's a different issue. Than, and so it, it's a portrayal of a man of integrity. It's probably the greatest portrayal in, in literature of a man of integrity. And I, I would add, um, there's a collection of interviews of Ayn Rand called, uh, is it Objectively Speaking? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's an entire interview where Ayn Rand talks about Cyrano de Bergerac, and it's, uh, it will answer some of your questions, I'm sure. Hello. Is there such a thing as objectivist art? And if not, why not? <laughs> I would say that aside from the novels of Ayn Rand, um, there, there isn't. Uh, and... She even said once that, uh, that her husband's paintings are, in sense of life terms, the equivalent of her novels, but she would not call them a je- objectivist painting. Uh, why not? Uh, you want to entertain? I, mean, I, I, I don't think you classify any art in philosophical terms like that, and, and, it, and, and art's represented of this is Platonic art, or this is Aristotelian art, or this is objectivist art. It's a projection of a sense of life, and you might think that that sense of life can be shaped by philosophical ideas. And she'll talk, as I I think we said, of the 19th century, as having an Aristotelian sense of life. But that's different than saying this is Aristotelian art. And you have to think of what the actual sense of life being projected in the work of art is. And that's what you're trying to identify, and you can think of some as being shaped by objectivism, but if it, you really take it as this is highly particular and individualized, it's not like every objectivist, if they understand the principles and living the principles, have the same sense of life, and if they're artists, that's what they're going to project in their art. So the whole classification, I think, is just it's the wrong way of looking at things. You, I can think you can think of Ayn Rand's novels as objectivist art, because they're so highly philosophical and consciously philosophical. And I think that's part of what she says about painting. Painting doesn't contain ideas in that kind of way. And so that she says it's a similar sense of life, but she wouldn't call her husband's paintings objectivist. Um, There's something very, very distinctive about Ayn Rand's novels, because they're so highly philosophical. But that's atypical, way atypical about art, so that they're explicitly so. And unfortunately, I think there are a lot of objectivists who in a, in a somewhat second-handed kind of way try to replicate, try to replicate Ayn Rand, uh, or try to take these ideas in a kind of a rationalistic way and portray them without making them theirs in an individualistic way. And it's not, it becomes not their projection of their sense of life, but it becomes their projection of, kind of a, some kind of bromide about objectivism. And that's not just not objectivist art, it's often not art at all. 
Uh, and it, it, it's, it's, it's tricky if you're an objectivist and you're committed now to the cause and you want to do great art. You have to make sure that, A, the motivation is right, that you're, you're not doing propaganda, you're doing art. And so we'll take one question after this. Uh, and, um, and that you're actually expressing your own integrated sense of life the, 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 and not... You know, just you're not projecting philosophy. That's not the role of of art. It's not to project a philosophy. I mean, I, Rand's, Rand doesn't say she wrote her novels to teach us about objectivism. Right? Years ago, I told the late uh, great Charles Suarez that I was writing an objectivist novel, and he looked aghast. And I said, its opening line is, "The initiation of force is evil." He said, gazing at the Capaletti on the wall, Rachmaninoff in the background. <laughs> And, and he liked it. We were kind of joking. But that's how I've, I've read some stories and things that I think attempt to do something like that, not so object. But that's how it often feels or comes across as this artificial sort of thing. So I didn't finish the novel. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> okay, last question. Two-part question. When you look at a piece of art, do you feel that you can identify the artist's metaphysical value judgments, and if so, could you give us an example of that, a work of art and what you think those judgments are? So did you ask, do I? Yes. Sometimes, not always. It, 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 not always, do, is it worth it? <laughs> not always is it important. Not always do you have the time. Sometimes you're just experiencing the work of art, and, and that's it, and that's good enough. But 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 yes, I mean, uh, if you um, metaphysical, yeah, I mean, the, the clarity, the clarity of a uh, of a mirror, the light. I mean, I'm sorry, I'm using example of Iron Man. Maybe I should use an example that's well, not. Take what we we talked about the struggle in Michelangelo yeah, or yeah. in Beethoven, and if you put yeah. it in terms of important, it's important to fight for your values. Doesn't mean you're going to win. It might mean you're, most of the time you're going to lose, but you can think of that as a metaphysical. It's important to fight, um, and that. It, but I don't. I wouldn't put it as. I'm not trying to identify the sense of life of the artist. No. It's the, of the artwork right. is what. What is it projecting, and what is it saying to me? Yeah, I would think of a da the David's a good example. I mean, you stand before the David. It, you know what, what strikes you is the metaphysical value judgments. Reality is knowable. You look at that gaze that he has, uh, you know, and you can fight for your values. And here's here's a and if, particularly if you know the story, but even if you don't know anything about David, you just see the sculpture. Here's a young man, obviously challenged, facing an immense challenge. He's standing proud. He's standing firm. He's ready. Every muscle in his body is ready. And he's got this concentrated, focused look in his eyes. And, and what does that tell you about the, about the artwork? It tells you the artwork is projecting that kind of confidence in the world and our ability to know it and our ability to stand up for our values. And that's what it inspires in me. You know, if he can stand up to Goliath, right, this little this kid of 16, Right. What, a, what an inspiration that is to all of us to stand up for our values and to, and to, and to challenge and to stand up before those who would attack our values. Right. So it, it provides you with that fuel, but it's projecting that sense of life, that, 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 that those metaphysical value judgments. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thanks. 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 
Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, only by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.